So the uh, topic for tonight is Buddhism and sex. I call it Sexy Buddha. And the reason why I was uh, saying, you know, I'm a little, um, I'm like psyching myself out, is because it's a confusing topic. And it's one that, um, it's one that is becoming more clear and that each person really needs to figure out for themselves what their relationship is with both the principles of Buddhism and the perspective of the Buddha's teaching and sex or sexuality, sexual relations. So it's kind of like, you know, it's like, oh, it's like talking about, you know, eating meat or not eating meat. You know, it's like, ooh, the Buddha, the Buddha ate meat. You know, that's just the way it is. The Buddha, the, the Buddha chose not to have sex. That's the way it is. So you can just go boom, boom, and done. <laughs> you won't get enlightened if you, you know, don't do what the Buddha did. But, you know, I think there's a lot more room than that. Especially this day and age. And especially, so, as lay practitioners, which I like to kind of jokingly say, those who still have the choice or option to get laid, right? <laughs> it's still uh, in consciousness. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't... Okay, so that's kind of why. Like, why I was like, eh, I don't know, sure. Even I, you know, got some talking points, and then I was like, maybe I'll just talk about mindfulness or something. <laughs> but the reason why I actually wanted to do this uh, is because last week um, I was talking about sila, about, and about the kind of the three core uh, aspects of the Buddhist teaching, right? Sila, uh, which is known as morality or ethical integrity, the way I like to call it, uh, and uh, samadhi. Samadhi is uh, uh, this one-pointedness, this concentration, awareness. And then panya, uh, the cultivation of wisdom. Basically through the uh, adherence to the other two. So in talking about those, and then I was talking about its ethical integrity last week. And I talk about ethical integrity, you know, uh, there's the... 227 monastic rules that anyone who takes on the monastic role, uh, monks or nuns, nuns actually have 331 self-imposed rules. They felt like they needed a little extra. <laughs> you know, the, the bakunis. And the 227 rules of conduct for uh, someone who becomes a monastic in the Theravadin Buddhist lineage. So that is the kind of, that's the lineage, that's the foreground that Buddhism you know, has evolved and been carried on generation to generation out of the, this monastic kind of uh, world, preserved, some would say. For thousands of years. So then 2013, you know, Burning Man and Free Love has come and gone and come back again and, you know, polyamory and 
commitment and divorce and how do we make sense of it all? Right? What does this all mean? And how do we act skillfully? So that I don't really know. <laughs> but, you know, we give it a shot. And then the other thing is, so here I am, not a monastic, a lay teacher, you know, a householder that struggles with these same kind of topics. There were two main things that I that I kind of had an issue with when I first came uh, to pra- actually, well, after first studying Buddhism, <coughs> after practicing for many years, and that was uh, God. God, not God. And sex, not sex. Those are the two things. I was like, I don't know. God, not God. Raised Christian. Come from a Roman Catholic background. Kind of indoctrinated into higher power. Jesus Christ. God is all. God is love. And then to hear, no, yeah, there's not actually a creator God concept. Which was freeing in some ways. And a little terrifying in other ways. And then the same thing around kind of sex, not sex. Uh, Freeing in some ways. And terrifying in some other ways. So. And it's not just me. Uh, the attitude around sex and Buddhism um, is, like I said, it's been not discussed for a long time, be, primarily because we have the lineage as monastics, and they would just say, you know, if you choose to be a monastic, abstinent. That's a choice. And then from the time of the Buddha to now, there was some very clear expectations that the Buddha set out. For householders. But it's a little less clear. All under the... There's only five of them. So 227, 331, five. All pointing to the lessening of our own suffering. But really, you actually could just say one. And that all the 227, the 331, or the five break down into the word ahimsa. So ahimsa means do no harm. Just do no harm. And so from the sila perspective, from the um, ethical integrity perspective, if that is the number one intention in every action, no worries. So really, it's just one to think about. And we could really stop this sex conversation. Have sex as much as you want. Do no harm to yourself, to others, to standardize. You know? Wish it was that easy, right? But it gets complicated because we have egos, and we have desires, and we have skillful and unskillful ways that the mind goes. I talked a little bit about that last week with uh, kusala and akusala. Right? Kusala is considered skillful, skillful mind states, skillful ways to incline the mind. Akusala, unskillful. Right? 
So let me just kind of read these. Uh, so for householders, it's a little less clear, a little more open. To abstain from harming living beings. To abstain from taking that which is not given, i.e. stealing. To abstain from sexual misconduct. To abstain from false speech or harsh speech. To abstain from intoxicants and harmful drugs which lead to heedlessness. So all, again, encompassed in ahimsa. I think it's important to remember that. So that being said, you know, the Buddha's teaching, so he would say, okay, so for those of you who have or householders who have jobs and are raising children and, you know, uh, engaged in relationship, one, you're choosing suffering. Just know that. Yeah, basically, you're choosing suffering. You choose to be in sexual relationship, you're choosing suffering. You choose to be in... Uh, Engaged in the world? That's my perception. That's... Right. Yeah. You choose to be engaged in the world, you're choosing suffering. And it is perception. Whether you... Whether that's... Whether, whether you choose to perceive things as suffering or not suffering. But also, our causes. The ways in which we act. So... That being said, the Buddha talked about the middle way. This middle path between extreme kind of what? Puritanism or, uh, uh, I don't know. It just ex- like the, extre- the, the extreme kind of, um, you know, n- do nothing. Nothing is uh, okay. Have no pleasure to the extreme kind of heedlessness. So heedfulness and heedlessness. Uh, yeah. So either like extreme heedlessness or extreme kind of mortification even. Uh, kind of. Um, and what's that? I remember what, what like the, the monks, the Catholic monks, they like self, self-flatulation. Yeah. Flagellation. <laughs> not, not flagellation. <laughs> Might be that too, you know. <laughs> Self-flagellation, yeah. So they would, so they would sing, right, and then they would beat themselves up for it. Right? What? Everyone farts. <laughs> Even the Buddha farted. <laughs> so the idea of, you know, uh, uh, prior to the middle path, the idea was you're either going for extreme kind of. Uh, Heedfulness, Puritanism, which was is also and still to this day full of corruption, right? full of corruption. Or the other aspect, which is uh, you know this extreme kind of uh, uh, heedlessness, you know, which also has plenty of corruption and suffering and you know this kind of. Uh, just chasing desire. 
There's, there's, there's whole schools of thought that are all about just chase and, and gratify every desire that you have. Great, go for it. See how that goes. See if that really ends your suffering. That's my, you know, sure, I don't have an opinion about it. Go for it. See if it works. I like this idea of the middle way. You know. So we're not shutting it all out. But we're also uh, not just going to continually beat ourselves up or, you know, judge others for what they do. I had a friend of mine who was a monk for about eight years in Burma. And he was a hardcore kind of forest monk. So he would go kind of just camp under a tree for weeks at a time and wore, didn't have pretty robes, like wore, like took robes off of dead bodies and like wore, like just really like let it all go. And he said that um, at one point his sexual desire was so strong that he thought he had, she started to uh, have these uh, fantasies about cutting his genitals off. In meditation, it was just like so overwhelming, like sexual desire, fantasy would plague his mind. And he was so kind of like, I got to get rid of this, that he thought about, you know, cutting off his genitals. I'd say it's time to disrobe. (laughs) And he actually did. (laughs) Not there long after. But actually what he told me, and I, you know, I've had, I've had some battles with this myself. As he's told, what he told me is, you know, that it was so overwhelming and then the opposite was so overwhelming, right? So it was like the fantasy is so overwhelming and then the, the like, this is bad, wrong. I need to get rid of this desire. And that causes suffering. Both sides. And so the Buddha was like, no, let's, let's see this middle path. If you're going to choose the suffering of the householder life, then work with it. So prior to the Buddha's, uh, you know, setting off and taking robes, you know, he himself, he was just, he was a prince. He had concubines and, um, Flower girls, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, surrounded by dancing girls, concubines, and, you know, polygamy was, was common. So to have multiple wives and it was just very, it was very common, that idea of, uh, chasing desire. And he saw the futility in that. He saw that it's actually not leading to happiness. So he went to the other extreme. And then found, as my friend did, well, that doesn't actually lead to happiness either. So he found the, this kind of middle, middle way and then preached from there or taught from there. The middle way would advocate neither extreme puritanism or permissiveness. So let's see. There was no such thing as a married monk. Or none. There are quasi monasticism found within the Japanese traditions where uh, two, um, you know, priests or uh, priest and nun might meet and marry, but they're not considered uh, in the kind of larger scope of things. Of course, I might get in trouble for this, and if you're a Zen person, then you know, it's just words. <laughs> but the idea of like. 
uh, uh, it's considered quasi-monasticism because we're, you're, you're choosing to stay engaged in the householder life in some way. Even though, just like me, I mean, you know, so like, I'm not really, you know, I'm not a, a monk. So there's a way in which I've kind of stepped back from the full, as they call the going forth. And I'm cool with it, actually. But just, I felt like I needed to kind of put that out there. So yeah, so for monks, you know, no sex, masturbation, strict guidelines about contact with women. So um, if there's ever a monk or a nun that comes and they they do they they come here just to be, you know, like this is like a, a, a monastic hug or handshake is a bow, an anjali, the extension of the heart. They kind of think about it as, and um, you know, most. Monks and nuns are not freaked out about it. They're not going to like. Actually, I, when uh, Ama Tanasanti was here, uh, I gave her a hug, and then it was like this strange moment. And then I talked about it afterwards with her because I felt clean and she felt clean. And then it was she was just like it was a clean exchange. There was no like it was cool. Basically, she was like it's cool. <laughs> Just because I was like, because I care for her so much. All right, so what else? So coming from this, oh, the place of misconduct. I wanted to give you the actual what the Buddha talked about as far as what the actual guidelines are. Pretty, I talked a little bit about them last week. Avoid, okay, the Buddhist teaching on sexual misconduct in ancient India, 2,556 years ago. Okay, Primarily, men were thought to be lustful, and women were thought to be pure. Of course, we know that that has changed. <laughs> that we're all lustful. <laughs> And we're all pure, exactly. I like that. Sure. So uh, he avoids unlawful, so he, men, avoid unlawful sexual intercourse, abstains from it. Uh, he has no intercourse with girls who are still under the protection of a father or mother, brother or sister or relative, nor uh, with married women. Yeah, pretty, you know, standard. Nor female convicts, nor... And lastly, uh, with brothel girls. So this was the kind of, that was considered misconduct. Anything else was really kind of considered okay. So pretty unclear, right? And confusing in this day and age. If a man could observe restraint, and this is, I think, is still true, we could say not man, but if a person, if a practitioner, could uh, observe restraint, greater restraint, then this uh, was much the better. And so people like myself or you perhaps who have taken on, you know, this the ideas and the principles uh, of Buddhist practice or meditation practice, you know, it's often a good idea to, to take on, you know, maybe some celibacy for a period of time or, or working with desire in that way. And uh, if sexual harm 
tends to be uh, something that happens karmically or intentionally or unintentionally in your life. It might be something to think about. And uh, when I was going through my teacher training, uh, my teacher said, suggested I take a year of celibacy. And I was like, damn. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. That's why I, I looked at him and I said, I knew that was coming. And I did. And it was really hard. And it was, it was really challenging to take on uh, this, uh, this kind of letting go. And it was extremely rewarding to see um, how much the mind obsesses, not just on sex, but things that cause pleasure. And that's really what this practice is about. See, break the enchantment, see the delusion and get clear. That's really what this practice is about. And how do we do that? Desire is a natural urge. Right? The desire for sex, it's natural. So what do we do from there? We look at craving. The second noble truth. The second noble truth is we cause our own suffering due to selfish and self-centered craving. So letting go of the craving. It's not that desire is bad or wrong. It's the seeing the clinging to it. The craving. The craving to be right. The craving to be understood. The craving to be heard. The craving to be loved. The craving to be rich. The craving to be a pauper. The craving to be homeless. There's so many cravings. Craving to be blissed out. All are the cause of suffering. The desire, just like the flow, the stream I mentioned earlier in the meditation, the desire will arise, all of them, and allowing them to pass through our experience without necessarily having having some control, some say is really what is being pointed to. So it's not that sex is bad, but that clinging or the attachment, it's not that relationships are are bad. The Buddha said really clearly, uh, if there was two energies as strong as desire, he would not have become enlightened because it was the hardest thing to overcome. It took him the longest to overcome. Greed and hatred. But the enchantment with the kind of desire of uh, sex and sexual energy. There's that, you know, that that book. It took me a long time to really kind of get the, because the first book on Buddhism I ever read, Siddhartha, right? And uh, how many people read that book? What is it? Siddhartha? By Herman Hesse. By Herman Hesse, yeah. Yeah, it was like in high school or something like that, just out of high school. And, you know, it's totally not about the Buddha, but it's about desire. And it's about, like, coming to and wanting uh, and getting and then seeing that it's not helpful to just gratify desire all the time. 
So sex is an expression, right? Perhaps a chief, a chief expression of what we call tanha. In Pali, it's called tanha, which means thirst or craving or addiction. It can be considered a cycle of addiction. Again, like I was talking about desire. Desire will arise, whether it becomes a mental obsession and a physical compulsion, and that physical compulsion needs to be fulfilled, is whether or not we suffer. So freedom from suffering is freedom from that uh, need, that clinging. And it's not different whether you're whether it's sex or coffee or you know money. There's a, actually there's a couple good analogies around money. I'm going to do a little switching up here. This other. So it's so it's considered. So I'm going to back up. So it's considered helpful uh, to use uh, renunciation practice, which means looking at what we might be clinging to and let go of it for a period of time. Technology, let go of it for a week, a weekend, a year. Coffee, communication. I have a, it's kind of like the Sabbath. I have like a, uh, I've done this before in practice, but it's also something that I have a friend that does that unplugs and takes a day every Sunday, doesn't talk, just kind of hangs out. Meditation by themselves. Uh, and it's a beautiful way to kind of engage in this practice of letting go. Well, just one day a week. In this lineage, in this tradition, we have these meditation retreats that people go on, that we go on, that I teach, that some of you have gone to. Where that is, that's the whole purpose of it, is to let go of the worldly concerns and focus in on the one thing. Which is getting clear what's happening within me and around me at any given moment. And so sometimes, uh, and, and that and that means, you know, observing the, actually sometimes it's eight precepts. You know, we only eat once, once a day. Or you don't sleep on high or exalted beds. <laughs> or you don't listen to music. Or play music. Because some people, uh, in some of the traditions, considered a, a distraction. So all of the precepts are viewed as the same. Right? All of the precepts. So uh, sex or abstinence from drugs or... Uh, False or harmful speech, harsh speech, or taking that which is not given, they're all considered the same. There's not like, oh, if you are have sexual misconduct, then you're somehow bad, you're a sinner. 
There's no real concept of sin, which I found refreshing. Because the concept of sin is shaming. And so it's really more like, oh, that was unskillful. And how do we know that that was unskillful? Well, because there is some karmic momentum in all aspects of unskillful conduct. And there are karmic karmic aspects or karmic uh, uh, reverberations in skillful conduct. And we can feel that in our hearts, in our interactions, in our minds. We experience it. So I often talk about the peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind. The Buddha calls that the blameless. So when we are truly blameless, in other words, we can sit and breathe and be focused on what is happening and there is not and there is no uh, replaying of all the times that we fucked up or ways that we've been harmed. When there's just clear then we're experiencing, you know, positive karmic momentum. So from the Buddhist perspective, when we're afflicted, right, what the Buddha called uh, kilesas, the torments of mind, that that is karmic momentum playing itself out in the here and now. And And we don't, we can't actually know where and when and, you know, but sometimes it plays out. And just like when you're generous to somebody, you know, you give someone a gift, you know, there's like that, or like I took my mother out, you know, yesterday because we don't do the Sunday thing, we do the day before, so it's like, wait, we don't, it's just not busy. We like, she likes it. So we went, we went out, I took her out to, and we had this nice conversation, and it was just very, it was just very sweet. And there was a, she felt lighter, I felt lighter, and I, we, we left this, I left the situation, and it just felt good. I wasn't always that way. So that's another way to think about it. So whether it's, you know, uh, uh, our conduct now or our conduct in the past, all conduct has uh, uh, a positive or negative reaction. And that that, instead of this overseer God that's saying, like, you did this wrong and you're going to go to hell or whatever, it's like, you're living the hell. Based on your own actions and how you deal with it right now or when it arises is actually the opportunity. That's the only opportunity there is to reduce further suffering. Because what's done is done. And it's what we do now in this moment. And it basically means we're not uh, clinging to it and we're not pushing it away. Whatever it is. Pleasant, unpleasant or neither. But this is how karma and these precepts are connected. So there's no real guilt complex. That really it's just about living up to uh, what we know is good. What we know is skillful. And when we fall short, because we do, right? Who doesn't fall short of their ideals? (laughs) Because you could take this seat, if that's true. Because we do. And it's not about bad. 
It's about, that was not skillful. And into the next moment, how can I do that differently? And then doing it differently. I love this uh, quote I've been using for, it's part of the uh, Bodhisattva vow. If there is something that can be done about a situation, why be upset? If there is nothing that can be done about a situation, why be upset? You know? Just do the next right thing or let it go. Right? But that's kind of what the precepts are for. They're not commandments. There is no over... From the Buddhist perspective, there is no overseer God checking, you know whether you're naughty or nice. It's more like we are the heirs of our own karma. And it depends on us. And actually, uh, you know, so much of this um, precept stuff is about if you have a wholesome desire to want to live in a better way, then take the precepts and and just work with them. And if not, no big deal. It's on you. I'm not really that. I might get affected because you're speaking harshly to me or something. But then I'll deal with that. That's my stuff to deal with. Right? But it's the this ahimsa, this kind of no harm, that if we can just keep coming back to and seeing how whether suffering is going to spill out. So if our sexual uh, misconduct or our energy is geared around uh, sex and gratification of sex and the getting of it and the, you know, the coveting, then check, is that causing harm? <laughs> I mean, if we can get quiet enough, we'll really see it. So I was on a retreat, a long retreat. I was doing this concentration practice. And my mind was constantly being taken away. And it was going, it was, you know, I'm I'm a greedy type. That's my that's my profile. I like pleasure in all of its forms. Addicted, you know. And um so I would go into these fantasies, fantasies, fantasies. And then I started being like, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm here for concentration. I'm going to get deep. I want to get enlightened. I'm going to get free, you know. And I would, and I started it. And we have, you meet with the teacher every couple of days to make sure you're not going crazy. Which I was, clearly, going crazy. And I felt shame about bringing it up. I was having sexual fantasies. Right? Or rehashing Old relationships that didn't end well, you know, and how I could have done that differently and how I could have done that differently, right? And I was like, and so, and actually what I noticed is that, so when I was, when I would be dealing with that, which is called kilesas, torments of mind, karmic momentum playing itself out because I was quiet enough, that my mind would then go into fantasy. And even if it was like a cookie, you know, or like Jello, or you know, whatever. Like, what's for lunch? You know, fantasy. Get out of unpleasant. 
I started to notice this movement in my mind. Skillful, unskillful. Skillful, unskillful. Avoidant, grasping. And I went to go speak to the, the teacher after several days of debating whether or not I should even tell anyone what was actually going on in my mind. Because I looked so peaceful, you know. <laughs> I was very concentrated. And yet, it was still suffering, right? It was rising to the surface as it's supposed to. So I went and talked to Guy Armstrong, who's a very skillful teacher. And I'm intimidated by him. I was. And, uh, and I was like, look, man, I just got to tell you what's going on. And, and I told him, you know, I'm having these fantasies and whatnot. And then I like get repulsed by them. And I'm like, this is not okay. And I'm like, this, I was kind of judging myself. And then I couldn't concentrate. And then, and he was like, what if you just let it go? Just like get into the fantasy of it. He, and I was like, what? He was like, just feed it. Just see where it goes. Instead of denying it. Just look at the fantasy. You're on a retreat. You're in silence. You're celibate. You're not going to do anything about it. So you're not actually causing any harm. So to try to, to see what happens when you feed the demon. And so I gave it a try. And it was pretty amazing. And I started to see how we can find freedom through following the precepts. Because it gives us a container to let our, that, some of that stuff out. We don't have to let it spill out on everyone else. And I was talking about that a bit last week. So restraint can be helpful. And so the idea of these, of these, and even if it's like, you know, hey, you want to take mushrooms and find spiritual enlightenment? Cool. Don't take the fifth precept. If you want to work on the fifth precept as a, a kind of a rule of engagement, well then, maybe you want to take that one on. Thich Nhat Hanh uh, says very clearly, like if, 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 it, if you don't completely commit for even just that one moment that you're actually going to say the the precept. If you don't completely commit to it, don't take it. Don't set yourself up. Wait till you're ready. So like around abstinence or around uh, non-harming or around stealing or around sexual misconduct. Around uh, lying or speaking harshly or just don't take that one. And maybe focus, keep, don't not take any of them, but keep, you know, focus on the one that you're, oh, I'm totally willing to do that. Like, I'm totally willing to not steal for right now. You know? Let's see what else. So yeah, we talked about sexual indulgence and addiction, tanha. Oh, there was this one. Oh, I like this. So uh, in the Bible, sin renders, actually renders kind of Hebrew and Greek words, which literally means missing the mark. 
which I thought fascinating, right? And then, uh, so behaving inadequately or unskillfully, uh, the sinner then is like an unskillful archer who misses his aim. I like that. It was like, oh wow. That, so that's like this Buddhist idea of precepts. You know, you have an ideal and you meet it to the best of you can. And if if and if you're not meeting it, generally it's unskillful. You're missing. You miss the mark. Okay. So what do you do? You pull another arrow and you try again. And actually, there's uh, some reference to um, in Zen. There's Zen archery, and it's like, is that the you know the, the, in the commentary around this? Uh, is that what we're talking about? Is that they're actually physically practicing? This hitting the mark. I like it. I like it. It just takes the shame out of it, you know? Now, shame... Well, actually, I should say guilt and remorse are helpful. They're helpful. The Buddha called them the great guardians of the world. And I love that that statement. The great guardians of the world. Because when we have guilt, it means we got something that that we need to look at. And when we have remorse, it means that we've done something that we need to maybe clean up. So these precepts are also the container to, okay, well, am I acting right in the world? How's my conduct? And then... Looking at our mind states or what happens in our heart-mind connection, chitta, in this heart-mind connection, that's what this meditation is about, quieting enough to listen. And then you get, you know, this is panya, wisdom, seeing clearly, clear comprehension of skillful or unskillful. So just one more kind of... uh, Example. So I'm sure you've heard the statement, money is the root of all evil. Actually, there's nothing wrong with money at all. Money isn't the root of all evil. Greed is the root of all evil. In that aspect, right? So someone pointed out, you know, that it's not money, but the love for money that is the root of all evil. Well, at least a lot of it. Maybe not the root of all evil. So there's the snag. Sexual pleasure, like money, is not evil. Right? Uh, or unskillful. It's the, But the attachment to sexual pleasure, like love of money, can be the cause of the suffering. The root of the evil. So I liked it. It was easier for me when I like, uh, I just take it. Oh, money. Oh, yeah, I could see that. It's still greed. It's still attachment. Clinging. So it's not about let go of all money, although this is what monks do, right? They let go of all money. They can't, they don't touch money, use money. They just remove themselves. They let go of all, uh, sexual kind of conduct. Contact. So that's one. That's one example. The other example is how can you engage? In some ways, I mean, it's it's difficult. I've tried it. it. Was extremely difficult. 
and then to uh, that's so that's one extreme. And then the other uh, is how do you have contact with money and sex and love in that way? Not that you know uh, Buddhism is is all about love. It's just not greedy love. <laughs> right? Unconditional. So how do you have contact? How do you stay engaged? We have a hard job. We're choosing suffering by the engagement. But we're also, it, it is, and, and as the Buddha pointed out when he gave the five precepts and said, just follow these five and you will reduce suffering in your life and in the world. Just follow these five. Abstain from killing, stealing, lying, being uh, unintegrous with your sexual energy, and abstaining from mind-altering substances. And you will reduce suffering. And if you choose not to, don't beat yourself up, but learn from it. You know, by paying attention, giving attention to what's happening within you and around you in any given moment. Oh, wow. My heart is heavy right now. I wonder why. Maybe because I spoke harshly. Maybe because I uh, uh, was greedy in that moment. And just bringing attention to that. This is where guilt and remorse can can be helpful. The great guardians of the world. I love that. All right. So, I'm going to let that go. There's... Okay. There's, here's a, an example that this writer gives you know, around love. I am in love means I... I want me to be happy. I love means I want to make you happy. I am in love means I want me to be happy. I love means I want to make you happy. So uh, the Buddhists might reflect on... A Buddhist might reflect and even meditate on these two statements at various levels. And never forget the golden rule... Never let passion override compassion. Never let passion override compassion. I love that. I don't know whose golden rule it is. But I like it. Never let passion override compassion. So if we're feeling that kind of reaching, that grabbing, that grasping, that wanting... Some people consider that's passion. And if that is overriding, is this skillful, helpful, honorable, ethical? That's what we're that's what we're asked to look at. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.